way for some uh, weeks now through what uh, sometimes called the Passion Week, the last week of our Lord's earthly life and ministry leading to the cross. Jesus has been through a two-phase trial now, first before the Jews and then before the Romans. He has been thoroughly examined by Pilate and by Herod, and now Pilate is going to pronounce verdict. But Pilate is a politician all the way, who operates not by principle, but by pragmatism, and specifically by the kind of pragmatism that serves Pilate. By the way, I want to mention to you as we're reading through the text that verse 17 is omitted from your modern translations. It'll be particularly obvious to you if, you, to you if you're reading through the uh, King James Version or the New King James Version uh, this morning because you will have in your Bibles after verse 16 something along the lines of this. For of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. Now while we do learn from Matthew and Mark that it was the custom to release one Jewish prisoner at the feast and there's no question about the placement of those words in those two Gospels, there is some scholarly question about whether or not they were originally here in the Gospel of Luke. I can't help but think of Rosemary at this moment and the challenges she'll face uh, as a Bible translator someday and and facing just these sorts of questions. But uh, the King James Version is based on one Greek text, uh, which does not include, uh, which does include this uh, verse while the modern versions are based on a more eclectic collection of Greek texts, which does not. I could bore you to death with the details, but um, that's the basic explanation behind the fact that our reading will skip this morning from verse 16 to verse 18. Either way, the omission makes no uh, real change to the meaning or message of the text, particularly in light of our knowledge of the other two, what are called synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word and uh, prepare to receive it, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be at work preparing us for it, molding and shaping us by the power of your word. We pray it for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. That is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the word. Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. For some reason it seemed important that he also include the people. uh, Maybe because he thought he could make a better appeal to them than he could to the rulers. Seeing their... uh, their own rebellion against the Lord and thinking maybe the people would would do a little better. But uh, he said to them, verse 14, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death, has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. 
But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Uh, But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. My, how quickly things change, particularly the opinions of men. In less than a week, the popular treatment of Jesus in Jerusalem turns from praise to prevailing calls for his crucifixion. And it's been less than a week in the text since Jesus came triumphantly on a donkey's back into Jerusalem to the praises of the people. It might seem longer to us, perhaps, because so much took place during those few days and because we've been... Uh, concentrating on those days between his triumphal entry and his crucifixion, taking them one paragraph at a time, and so sort of stretching it out, Lord's Day, the Lord's Day. But, but it was indeed a very, very short time that elapsed between the time that Jerusalem strained her voice in hosannas and then shouted herself hoarse with crucify him. Maybe we have... In that fact, already a lesson for ourselves about putting very little stock in public opinion. It changes like the daily weather in a week of Owensboro winter. But regardless of fickle public opinion, there remain the unchangeable facts that Dr. Luke skillfully sets before us this morning in these events. Just as mercurial, as changing and shifting and volatile as the state of the people was that day, the, the immutability of Jesus' in, uh, innocence, the certainty, absolutely proven certainty of his innocent, innocence, as Luke is at pains to demonstrate, remains fixed. Jesus was clearly innocent of all the charges that are levied against him, yet would go to his death as a sacrificial lamb and a substitute for sinners. Those two things to consider this morning. First, consider Jesus' innocence in this entire matter. The high priests and the officers, they hated Jesus with a jealous passion, and they could not legitimately lay any charge at Jesus' feet. But that did not stop them from accusing him before Pilate of three things. Misleading the nation, forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. On the first point, misleading the nation, if Jesus was 
who he said he was in calling men to repentance, to denying themselves, to taking up their cross and following him. If he was, I say, an imposter, a false Christ, then yes, he would have been guilty. And we would have to concede and Luke to Jesus' guilt. But being who he said he was, he was not misleading the nation at all. On the second, the charge of forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, this is an easy one. We saw back in chapter 20, it was just a matter of a couple of days before this, as a matter of fact, that Jesus made it perfectly plain that they were to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This charge that they made against him was a bald-faced lie, the very opposite of what Jesus had clearly taught. On the third, Jesus claimed to be Christ, a king. Oh, that could only be charged against him like the first one if it were not true. But if it is true, and Dr. Luke's entire point in this whole gospel is that he is, that it is true that he is the Christ, then then this is not a crime. This is simply the truth. If their point is that Jesus is setting himself up as direct competition for Caesar's throne, that too is false. Jesus had made it perfectly clear that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, a worldly one. He is in no need of earthly king's thrones, who is himself the king of kings. The charges were patently false, therefore, and Jesus was innocent at all. Of all of them. But what's fascinating about this passage is the obvious work that Luke makes of demonstrating that point and hammering it home over and over and over again. Three, maybe four times, depending on how you count them, he records the verdict. The first time we already read back in verse 4, Pilate speaking to the high priests, I find no guilt in this man. The second declaration in verse 14. You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And yet again, to his own, he adds the judgment of Herod in verse 15. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And finally, verse 22, a third time he says, I have found no guilt in him deserving of death. This was not simply the personal opinion of Pilate. This was the result of a Roman-style interrogation and investigation. And not only by Pilate, but by Herod too. If we may pull a principle from the book of Deuteronomy... Jesus' innocence was established by the testimony of these two witnesses. And those witnesses, by the way, no friends of Jesus, no interest in trying to find him innocent. That's just the way it was. Yet between them, they could not find a stitch of guilt. Pilate finally wonders in verse 22 whether Jesus has done a single evil thing at all. The cruel compromise that Pilate offers is as diabolical as it is despicable. I'll give him a good beating, and then I'll release him. 
But that just further serves to highlight Jesus' innocence. Pilate's solution was just a shocking travesty of justice because no innocent man should receive a beating precisely because he is innocent. And then the final capitulation of Pilate to the people amounts to the prostitution of the entire Roman justice system to crucify an innocent man to mollify an unruly mob. Why all of this intense interest on Luke's part in Jesus' innocence and emphasis on it? Certainly not just to incite in us a a moral outrage, although it certainly should do that. Our jaws collectively hit the floor that day when, for those who can remember it, O.J. Simpson walked out of the courtroom acquitted of the charge of murder that the entire nation knew he had committed. But imagine if that same day the jury had turned and tried an innocent bystander. The bailiff ran out and grabbed some guy from the sidewalk outside of the courthouse as O.J. left, dragged him into the courtroom, uh, charged him, and then rushed him the same day to the electric chair. Can you imagine the reaction? You just killed an innocent man. Looking on him whom we have pierced, on Jesus the innocent, there should be in us a sick feeling in the pits of our stomachs over the events that unfolded in Jerusalem on this truly black Friday. Given a choice between justice or a mass uprising with an accompanying black spot on Pilate's record back in Rome, the innocent Galilean teacher becomes the sacrificial lamb. But praise be to God that he did. Because he became your lamb that day. A lamb without blemish or spot, a perfect lamb, as Peter describes him, an innocent lamb. The only truly, completely innocent man who ever walked the face of the earth. That, I think, is why Luke lays so much emphasis on this matter of Jesus' innocence here. It is to demonstrate to us clearly that Jesus did not go through all of this, did not endure the beatings and the mocking and the shame, the ignominy of the cross because of anything that he did or said or even thought. Pilate didn't know the half of what was coming off of his lips when he questioned whether Jesus had done any evil thing. Fact is, he had never done a single evil thing. Not even one with a half-evil motive. The likes of which lie behind virtually everything that you and I have done even this morning. He did not go to the cross for his sins. He went to the cross for yours. For every sinful deed, every false word, even even 
the thoughts that you've had that were evil. He died for those. And he died for your failure to do and to say and to think what we're always, every day, failing to do or think or say. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? We ask in this house from time to time, and the answer, I am the guilty. I, it was, undone thee. The good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned, and the son hath suffered. Which leads me to the second point. Remember not only Jesus' innocence, but consider Christian Jesus' substitution. We've already made the point that a shocking travesty of justice took place the day that Jesus died. And indeed, it did. The fact is, you should have died. Instead, he died and you live. That's the whole point of this Barnabas, Barabbas rather, story. At least the main point of it, I think. We, we might also see in Barabbas, I think, a, a foil for the totally transparent uh, hypocrisy and duplicity of the religious leaders and the people whom they managed to whip into a frenzy against Jesus. What was their charge against Jesus? Fundamentally, it was this, that, that he, he was an insurrectionist. That's what they were trying to convince the Roman procurator Pilate, that Jesus was an insurrection, insurrectionist. For treason against Rome, they were saying to Pilate, Rome should put him to death. But then, taking the traditional Passover choice of a prisoner for Rome to set free during the festival, whom do they choose but a treasonous insurrectionist by the name of Barabbas? Pilate could see right through them. The Jews, and particularly the Jewish leaders, were not demanding Jesus' crucifixion because Jesus was a rebel against Rome, as they so disingenuously insisted. They wanted him dead, and that by the worst, most torturous, most shameful, humiliatingly public way possible because he had offended their sensibilities. He had exposed their hypocrisy. He had shown them their own hearts, and it was ugly. He had unmasked their hearts for everyone to see. Not that they needed any help, by the way, in that department. It may have been inadvertent on their part, but they effectively stripped themselves bare here before Pilate. The day they charged Jesus with insurrection in one breath and then call for the release of a true insurrectionist and murderer to boot with their next breath. Maybe we get a little closer to the understanding the part that Barabbas plays in this narrative when we look at his name, Barabbas. Literally, his name means son of the father, Barabbas. Jesus, too, was the son of a father. He was and is the son of the heavenly father. So, Here we have one son of a father, a son of his father, the devil, 
or at least the son of an earthly father who passed down to his son the sins of his father and his father and his father and his father, Adam, being set free to live, while the other, the son of the father, is being bound and led to his death. Now, whether we may fairly take all of that from Barabbas' name or not, the, the fact is there is a substitution taking place here. One insurrectionist who is no insurrectionist at all is being sacrificed in the place of a true insurrectionist, a rebel not only against Rome, but against God, a true criminal, a murderer, the worst of criminals in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would be counted among the wicked Jesus, the innocent, dies, while Barabbas, the guilty, lives. I'm not saying that Barabbas was saved in the eternal sense, that he became a Christian that day. Though, wouldn't it be wonderful to run into Barabbas someday in heaven and hear him tell how he later turned and trusted Jesus to take his place in that way, too? But Barabbas stands forever as a testimony of God's word, as a picture, really, a picture of you and of me and of everyone else in whose place Jesus stood condemned that day in Pilate's court. Barabbas is the story that explains Jesus. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood. Barabbas was everything that Jesus is not. He deserved everything that Jesus did not. But while he went free, Jesus got the cross, and that's exactly what you and I, who trust in Jesus and rest on him for our salvation today, received in this great exchange. Jesus takes our place so that we can take his. The true son of the father took on himself our sin and the curse that was due us because of our sin. And scripture teaches us we are justified, we are pardoned, declared righteous when we were released from that curse and were made sons of God when God the Son died in our place. Maybe you remember reading Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities, sometime in high school or in college. If so, you remember how during the dark days of the French Revolution with its infamous Madame Guillotine, Thousands lost their lives by beheading. In Dickens' tale, an Englishman by the name of Sidney Carton has a plan to save the patriot uh, Charles Darnay, who is condemned to die. The plan is very simple. Take his place. The two looked... Enough alike that in the hour before his execution, Carton shows up at the prison and the two exchange clothes and positions. On the way to 
the public execution, Carton meets an innocent young seamstress who was also condemned to die. But she knows Darnay, and so she recognizes what's going on here. Carton is taking his place. Carton's supreme sacrifice reminds her of Jesus, and, and holding his hand, she is given courage to face her own death. I've been able to raise my thoughts, she says, to him who was put to death that we might have hope and comfort. Who that knows Jesus as his or her Savior can read any story of one person dying in the place of another without thinking immediately the same thing, how the Lord took my place on the cross. Even from the earliest days of the Christian church, this this great exchange, this willing substitution, Jesus for us has been right at the center of the thoughts and the praises and the wondering hearts of Christians. Listen to this excerpt from a letter written in the second century to one Diognetus. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the Holy One, For transgressors, the blameless one, for the wicked, the incorruptible one, for the corruptible, the immortal one, for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be laid It should be hid in a single righteous one. And that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Try to imagine for a moment what it must have been like for Barabbas to get that news. Rotting in the cell, waiting for capital punishment to fall on him on death road. What it must have been like when the news came to him, the door swung open, you're free, go. That someone else was going to die in his place. When all hope was lost, suddenly, life. We have received the same news. My brothers and sisters, only infinitely and, and more wonderfully, when there was nothing we could do, when we were still sinners, condemned to die on death row, suddenly, life. Jesus took your place. Praise be to God. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing 
all expectation, Jesus took my place.